Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Uh, the focus of the sermon is verses 5 through 8, but for the sake of continuity, I want to read verses 1 through 8. And hear God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in, in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. We acknowledge to you that your word is the word of life, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And Father, we would seek this morning that spiritual nourishment that comes not only through the reading, but now through the preaching. Oh God, may it be faithful. May it be alive and full of your spirit, full of divine energy. Oh God, we don't want preaching that's dull and boring. It will be to the flesh. That that isn't what we mean. But to to the spiritual inner man. Oh, God, we pray there would be something for him, something of of the life of God, something of the power of the spirit. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, the subject that is before us, as you know, and as I've been stressing, uh, is that of assurance, Uh, the kind of assurance uh, that I described from uh, the marrow of modern divinity when. Uh, Neophytus says to Evangelistia, or, or Evangelistia says to Neophytus that uh, what, what I am discerning is not that you want to be sure that, uh, not to not to be sure that you believe, but to believe. Uh, well, I can't remember it. <laughs> I, at any rate, we want to be we want to be sure that we have faith. It is the assurance that we have about ourselves. We want to know that we are Christians. If you remember how Paul begins uh, Romans, he begins Romans, uh, and I'm talking about after the introductory material, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, or or verse 15, 14 and 15, uh, and then 16. He speaks of his desire to preach. He speaks of his confidence in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. More and more as I think about that, in describing his desire to preach as one of not being ashamed, What he's really expressing there is his assurance about the gospel, his confidence, his certainty. Now, Paul was some someone who came to a certainty about the gospel, and that's what animated his preaching. You see, what I'm really saying is that Romans, as much as anything, is Paul's desire not only for us to believe the gospel, but to arrive at an assurance of faith for us to be confident that we indeed are the sons of God, that we are saved and that we are Christians For we have experienced, as Paul says, the power of God to save. And that's something that we know about ourselves. You see, it is okay to say not only that 
I have confidence in God, but also I have confidence in myself. Not in the sense of saying I have confidence in my own works, but I know that God's power is at work in me. I know that he saved me. I believe that I have believed. That was the essence of the quote that I can't remember. I believe that I've believed. I'm sure of God, but also sure of myself. Well, you remember, uh, I hope you remember at least, the outline of the chapter, chapter 8, if the, if the great theme is that of assurance. And any of you who are familiar with chapter 8 know that it, it reaches really at the end of the chapter one of the most uh, stunning statements of the believer's confidence and of his assurance. I'm certain nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing at all. The chapter begins with, uh, there are three kinds of assurance, and the, 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 the chapter begins with the first kind, and that is by considering salvation as God's work, not as our work, chapters, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. But then, moving on from that, well, j- just to recap, I think it's best summarized in what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, verse 3, God did. Salvation is a matter of what God did, not what I can do. I know that I can't do it. I know that I can't do it and the law can't do it, but God can and he has. And I believe that. And I'm sure of that. That's the first kind. But the second kind, which becomes the preoccupying concern from verses 5 to 13, is what I've been talking about. And that's the believer's confidence about himself. And so the way to get assurance is by considering God first. But then you've got to consider yourself. Paul says, chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, he's already describing not only what is true, uh, what God has done. He justifies so that there is no condemnation. But he's also describing those for whom it is true. It's true for those who are in Christ Jesus. Raising the question, yes, but am am I in Christ Jesus? Likewise, he says in chapter 8, verse 4. Uh, that the righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled in us, that is, in believers. And then he qualifies that, and that qualifying statement leads him to, it, to, to expand upon this truth in verses eight, uh, 5 through 8. He says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, again, you see, he's causing us to reflect upon this question, who are those of whom this is true? You see, not all are saved. That's an important point that Paul is making here. And it stands out with great clarity in the verses which are before us, verses 5 through 8. It is not true to say that all uh, are not now under condemnation. In fact, the vast majority of mankind, both now and always, are, 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 uh, are under the condemnation of God. And the wrath of God from heaven is being revealed against them, both now and forever. You can't say of just anyone that there is now no uh, condemnation. Only those who are in Christ Jesus, only those to use the language of verse 4b and verses 5 through 8, who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And so that causes me to ask this question, and it is the question that is answered in the second kind of assurance. Who are these people and why is it true of them that they are saved and not others? And then, of course, do I belong to this category? Do I fit the dis- description? I am aware of uh, the way in which the Bible and especially the New Testament describes the believer. But what I want to know is, do I match that description? And then if I do, 
then I ought to be sure. I ought to enjoy a kind of confidence in myself that I enjoy with respect to God in the first kind of assurance. And then finally, just to complete the argument, the third and the highest form of assurance occurs in verses uh, 14 through 17 when the testimony uh, when the testimony of the Holy Spirit is added to our own testimony. I have concluded about myself that I'm a Christian and the spirit comes in and says, yes, indeed, you are the son of God. You are you belong to the sons of God. But for now, we focus on the second form of assurance that of the believer about himself. And the thought is this. I know that I am saved for this reason, because I do not walk according to the flesh. No, I walk according to the spirit. And for this reason, I know I am sure that I am saved. I am sure that I am a Christian. I am sure that I am justified and that there is and can be and never will be any condemnation for me. Paul is describing the Christian in contrast to the to those who are not. Well, the logic here is very important to observe. Paul is not saying that such people are saved because they do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, uh, we are entering into the realm of sanctification, but Paul is not saying that we are saved by our sanctification. We are not saved by personal holiness. No, what he's saying is this. Here's what's true of those who are. Those who are saved already. Those who are already justified, having been justified by faith, he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Here, indeed, are the true believers, the sons of God, Christians indeed. Those who have a right to every promise. Those who ought to be sure. Those who can read chapter 8 of of Romans and know it's for them. And utter it with their own mouths and confidence before God and others. This is how Robert Haldane puts it in his commentary. He says, in this way, then, we may be assured that we are in Christ Jesus. And that there is no condemnation to us if we experience the effects of his spirit in our hearts, causing us to walk in holiness. When we see that we're walking differently than the world, and even differently than we used to walk, in this way we may be assured assured that we are in Christ Jesus and that there's no condemnation for us. And so what we have in these verses, beginning in the second part of verse 4, and then expanded in verses 5 through 8, is just a simple contrast of those who are Christians and those who are not. Those who are Christians, chapter 8, verse 1, are in Christ Jesus. Also in that verse and again in verses four and following, they are walking in and by the spirit. Whereas those who are not Christians, uh, to put it in the simplest form, are walking and living according to the flesh. On these verses and on this subject, John Owen has many helpful things to say. There was a little book we read in uh, the men's study called spiritual mindedness and the entirety of the book is on chapter 8 verse 6 chapter 8 verse 6 is to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace well i want to read several things owen said in that chap uh, in that book but here here is the first he says he's opening the work by saying this and i think this establishes the importance of this contrast he says everyone in this world is either carnally minded or spiritually minded There are the two states of all mankind, and it should be our highest concern to know in which state we are. You see, Owen is saying there is nothing more important for us to settle about ourselves, whether you are a child, 
the children of believers or whether you're, you're old and, and, and have been walking and living in the church for a long time, there is no greater concern for anyone, no matter what station of, of life you are in, than to settle this question, and that is to know in which state we are, as Owen says. Uh, this is the kind of thing that used to be common. In fact, uh, recently in reading Marsden's biography of Edwards, I was impressed that this was Jonathan Edwards' highest concern uh, with his 11 children, even when they left the home, the kind of letters he would write his children. The great thing that you ought to know or that you ought to strive to know about yourself is, are you in Christ? Are you a Christian? Is your state eternally secure? Are you sure of it? And that's the kind of thing uh, that needs uh, a concern that needs to be revived in the church today. You see, not just a pastor to the church, but Christian to Christian and even parents to children. Do you know in which state you are. You notice, and I became aware of this in my study, uh, Paul is not contrasting, as some have suggested, the mature believer and the immature believer. You see, the mature believer is spiritual and the immature believer is, is fleshly. And Paul is saying we all want to be mature believers. Apparently, there are those who make that argument. But that isn't what Paul is saying. Paul is contrasting, as Owen says, the believer from the unbeliever. And it is a very stark and striking contrast. What we're seeking and what Owen is describing to be sure of ourselves once more is the second kind of assurance. And then having arrived at that, we need the Holy Spirit to add his testimony to ours, that our testimony is true. Well, let us consider the difference between these two states the believer and the unbeliever. To quote Owen again, though I'm modifying the quote slightly, he says, the difference between these two states is as great as the distance between their goals is infinite. Now, that is, isn't exactly what he said, but I, I like it a little better that way. <laughs> we begin with the unbeliever. There are certain things that are true of him and that are invariably true of him. This is something we have to keep before us, especially when we come to the side of the believer. We aren't going to say, well, you know, this is true of some believers, the believers who are advanced in their sanctification. No, in both cases, these things are always true of the unbeliever. These things are always true of the believer. What can we say of the unbeliever? Well, the first thing that is true of the unbeliever is that the righteous requirement of law is not being fulfilled in him. Whereas it is in the believer. And so we can also say that's verse four, verse one, that there is now condemnation for him. And unless he's saved, unless he becomes a believer, there always will be. And so we already are aware that the whole of his position stands in total contrast to that of the believer. Certainly from the standpoint of justification, but also from the standpoint of sanctification, that is, his life. But why does it differ? And that's what Paul describes here. And understanding this difference will ultimately enable us to be sure of ourselves if we are Christians. The first reason that his position differs from the unbeliever from the believer rather and this is the great reason it's that he's living according to the flesh verse five those who live according to the flesh he says or uh, verse four those who walk according to the flesh it's the same thing in either case it's the life it's the walk you remember what was said in verse uh, in psalm one the man who's blessed is he who walks in the law of god what we need to understand about the unbeliever is that this is the most characteristic feature of his life. The thing that determines everything about him is his outlook, his life, his relationship to God. It's that he is 
And thus he walks according to the flesh. You remember what Paul says in chapter 6 verse 1 and 2. He says, now that uh, we have been saved, shall we sin that grace may abound? May it never be how who, uh, how, uh, now I'm terrible at remembering quotes. I need, I need them before me. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You see, Paul makes it a matter of your life. And he's saying the Christian has been saved by grace. How can he live in sin anymore? Even though there were those, even though there were those who were making this case that a man could be saved and yet live according to the flesh. Not so, Paul says. But what does it mean to walk or to live according to the flesh? Well, we need to understand what he means by the flesh. According to the flesh. What does that mean? Well, flesh here must be understood not primarily in a material sense, that is my body, though that is included, but in the ethical sense. To be fleshly is to be sinful. It is to belong to the sinful realm of this world, which is a material realm. It is the realm that is seen. It's the realm that's temporal. But the great thing about it is that it is sinful. And thus it is unspiritual. It stands in total contrast to the spirit, uppercase S, the Holy Spirit, the realm and the life of the spirit found in the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of darkness. Jesus himself comments on this in John chapter three, verses five and six. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So here is a man who's standing outside of the kingdom of God. And this is what he says about him. Verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You see, it includes the physical element. A man is born a material body. And so the, the, the physical element is present. But what is primary about him being born in this material way is that he's born into a sinful world. And thus his spiritual condition is fleshly. That's what Jesus is emphasizing. He is living his life outside of the life And the power of the spirit. He is not born into that which is spiritual. He is born into that which is flesh. That is his spiritual condition. And to enter into the realm of the spirit. Jesus says. He must be born again. He must be born by the spirit. Then he'll be spirit. And so. The language of according to. Has to do with the realm. In which one lives and operates. Or as John Murray describes it. It. This phrase describes one's basic moral condition. One is either flesh or spirit. And it all has to do with how he is born. He is either born or he is born again. And that determines everything. And because this is true, we find a second basic characteristic that the unbeliever minds the things of the flesh. And this is the great thing that Owen is emphasizing in his book. The mind of the believer, the mind of the unbeliever. You see, that's what Paul focuses on here. He says those who live according to the flesh mind the things of the flesh. Owen says that the flesh has a mind. Again, the flesh understand understood in an ethical sense, the depraved fall in human nature. It has a will. It has desires. It has affections. There are things that the unbeliever thinks about. There are things that the unbeliever wants to do. There are things that interest him greatly. There are things that do not interest him. Think of the spiritual things of the gospel. There are things he understands, things he doesn't understand. The gospel comes to him as a mystery. Why? Because he has a mind of the flesh, not a mind of the spirit. But but in all the things that I've mentioned, I, I want to attach the greatest importance 
to what he enjoys? What are the things that he relishes and delights in in his life? The things that animate his desires? The thing that he lies in bed and thinks about at night? What are the things he wants to do? The things that the man who lives and walks according to the flesh wants to do are sinful things. That's the great concern of his life. To use the language of Jonathan Edwards, his affections. The things he has great affections for are always sin and never spiritual. The things that he knows and seeks to understand are material and worldly, never spiritual. For he lacks the faculty of spiritual understanding, so he minds them not. And whenever he tries to, they are to him a complete mystery. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. There's something else about him. He changes the language slightly in verse 6. He says, to be carnally minded is death. The man whose mind is sinful. Not only is his inward life set upon sin, he's minding it. He's setting his heart on it, in other words. But such a life is death, Paul is saying. Not in the sense that he says that this remains true. That the course of such a life is death. In other words, the outcome of the unbeliever is death. The outcome of sin is always death, Paul says. That, uh, that isn't the point here. Though, as I say, that remains true. The point is that the carnal mind, to be carnally minded, is death. Presently, that is true of the man who is living and walking according to the flesh. In the realm of the flesh. His heart fixated on sin. His life determined by it or dominated by it. He is dead already, though he lives. You know, Paul says uh, that later about the believer that though the body is dead, the life is alive because of the spirit. Verse 10. But you see, there is no life in him. The unbeliever, the body's dead. The spirit's dead. He is dead in transgressions. And sin, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. In other words, it's a way of saying that he's devoid of spiritual life. He knows nothing of the life of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. All he has is the body which is dead already. Why is such an existence a kind of living death? Well, Paul answers that too in verses 7 and 8. It's because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Here is a man, Paul says... And again, this is true invariably of every unbeliever who is God's enemy. If you are not a believer this day, then you are God's enemy. You see, Paul is not just saying that you never think of God, although that's true in a sense. And that would be bad enough. But it, it's actually true to say that whenever you do bother to think of God, what animates your soul is not love but hatred. You hate God. Have you ever noticed that about the unbeliever? Who is honest, how he hates God and he confesses it. Recently, I saw a clip. I, I don't remember who it was. So this is something of a famous clip. Maybe some, someone can tell me who it was who said this. But uh, a clip of a man, he was an atheist, who said to the interviewer uh, the, about a God whom he doesn't believe exa- exists. That if he met him, if I were to meet God on the last day, the question was, what would you say to him? And what he, w- he said he would say to him. These words are so blasphemous, they're difficult to utter, but I think that they illustrate well the enmity that Paul is speaking of. He said that he would say to him, how dare you? How dare you create a world of so much suffering and pain and misery if you are truly a God of love and justice and might? Well, I have to give this man credit at least for this. He was honest. 
He was saying what the unbeliever always thinks, if only he were honest enough to admit it. And the fact is that he hates God. He resents the whole notion of God. And so he sets his heart against God in all that he does. And he admits, even if he had the chance to meet God in person, he would express his enmity and his hatred. Are you surprised then to find that such a man in the whole tenor of his life is lived out in enmity toward God? He shows it in all that he does. And that's clear in the next phrase. He's not subject to the law of God. You see, if he was, if such a man was in any sense subject to the law of God, then you couldn't call him an enemy. But the truth is that the unbeliever who is consistent has no interest in God's law except to break it. John Murray says the attitude to the law is the index of the relation to God. I like that very much. Do you want to know how a man feels about God? Do you want to know how you feel about God? I wonder how you feel about his commandments. I wonder if you're subject to them or if you're constantly throwing them off. Show me how a man feels about God's law and I can show you how he feels about God. And the unbeliever, Paul says, the carnally minded man not only hates God, but he hates his commandments. And in this, his enmity to God is most clearly seen. When he thinks about God, the last thing he will ever do is submit to him. He will not be subject to the commands of God. And that's how you know his mind is set against God. But here's the final thing. He's not only not subject to God's law, but he can't be. That's the final thing Paul says about him. It's actually impossible for him to be. As he says at the end of verse 7, nor indeed can it be, and then verse 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, he doesn't say they do not. He says they cannot. They lack the ability. He cannot please God. There's a doctrine for this. We know about total depravity. Have you ever heard about total inability? Well, that's the doctrine we have here. The complete inability of the unbeliever to live a life which is pleasing to God in any sense. And why is that? Well, go back to the original point. It's because his whole moral condition is flesh. It is fleshly. He's a sinner whose whole life is dictated and dominated by sin. That's his basic moral condition. It's how he's born. He has no spiritual life in him. He's dead in a spiritual sense. And there is no possibility that such a man should serve God in his commands or in any sense live a life that's pleasing to him. That is the total picture of the unbeliever. That is the picture of, of anyone here today who is not professing Christ, who is not born again. I have not partially described you. I have described you in full. We've seen this already in chapter 6 and 7. We've seen it ever since chapter 1. The man against whom the wrath of God is being revealed. The one who is living a sinful, unrepentant existence. And here is just a further elaboration, the clearest statement yet. The man who is not in Christ, but who is living out his days in sin under condemnation. And do you see why it is that the righteous requirement of the law cannot and is not being fulfilled in him? Verse 4. Is there any difficulty here in saying that such a man is not a Christian and therefore is not saved or justified and that he's going to be condemned now and forever? You see, the whole course of his life makes it plain and obvious that he isn't a Christian. He might perhaps even claim to be a Christian, but he's deceived. And because that is so, it is clear that chapter 8 isn't for him. 
It might be if only he believed. If only he believed the message of the gospel, then the power of God would save him just as it saved us. Then he would cease to walk and to live according to the flesh and begin to walk and to live according to the spirit. But until that is true, until a man believes, until he's born again, he belongs in the category of the flesh. And therefore, nothing of the greatness of the Christian position, as described in Romans chapter 8, is for him. This is a point which needs to be stressed more often. There is, I think, too little teaching today in the church about the real difference between a Christian and one who isn't. And the sad result is that too many believe they are Christians when they are not. They claim to be at peace with God when their lives tell another story. That isn't, I want to be clear, my testimony about this church. I'm not saying that. I'm not casting down on your professions. I'm merely making a general comment on the church at large. But there is, on the other hand, and I realize uh, the time, there is the believer. What, what is true of him? And I'll try to say this as quickly as I can. First and foremost... He walks and lives according to the spirit, verses four and five. That is, he lives and operates in the realm of the Holy Spirit, capital S. This is a contrast which is common in Paul, uh, the flesh and the spirit, uh, most prominently uh, in. uh, Well, we found it in Galatians six already. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap death. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life. Galatians chapter five, verse 17, we find something similar. It's it's common in Paul. And what you notice in those two chapters, Galatians 5 and 6, and other places in Paul, that the believer is both flesh and spirit, capital S. But here is where he differs from the unbeliever. It isn't the absence of the fleshly part. It's that he's not habitually ruled by the flesh. And it's, by the way, uh, the presence of the spiritual part, which the unbeliever doesn't have. But though the believer has the flesh, he's not habitually ruled by it. Nor is the unbeliever ever ruled by the spirit. No, Paul says, each lives according to one and not the other. And while the unbeliever lives according to the flesh, the unbeliever lives and walks according to the spirit. In other words, whereas sin is what's ruling and dominating the existence of the unbeliever, it's the Holy Spirit who is ruling and dominating and determining the course of the believer's life. Uh, So much that he will later say, If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness in verse 10 or verse 9. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's what's true of the believer. He's living. He's operating in the realm of the spirit always, even in his more fleshly moments. You see, it isn't true of him that suddenly he's in the flesh. No, he isn't. He's always in the realm of the spirit. He's always being uh, ruled by the spirit. And as a result of this, he no longer minds the things of the flesh, but he now minds the things of the spirit. In other words, he sets his mind on them. His interest is now spiritual. If you want, this is, this is my highest commendation of this book. The greatest study I've ever read on this subject is this book, Spiritual Mindedness by John Owen. What does the, the mind that is spiritual really look like? And how do we cultivate the spiritual mind? Well, that's something that every believer should want to know. But you see, it's already true of him. He's already cultivated something of a spiritual outlook. His mind is renewed. His interest is no longer fleshly, but spiritual. Spiritual things now fill his mind. Uh, Thoughts of these things capture his heart. 
the preoccupying concern of his life is no longer sin or the material. It's now the spiritual. It's now the eternal. It's now the things of God. And the thing he wants to know most, the thing he thinks about most is, how can I be more spiritual? How can I be more holy? How can uh, I progress in my sanctification? How can I know more of God? And so on and so forth. His mind is now set on spiritual things. There is also, in contrast to the unbeliever, a new power, a new understanding and discernment and apprehension. Believers, are, are as, as the gospel is presented to them, it's not presented to them in a, in a riddle or a mystery. Now it appears to them as something that well, they can understand and they can accept, even if before they could not. And as they do so, it's more than a mere understanding, the faculty of the understanding. But think of the heart. Think of the affections. There is a delight. There is a relish. The believer loves to hear of the things of God. He loves to think of the things of God. Listen to how John Owen describes it. He says, this is a lengthy quote. He says, spiritual mindedness is the chief characteristic that distinguishes a believer from all unregenerate people. And he goes on, our thoughts are the best and surest way of showing us what we are in ourselves. So the thoughts of the heart reveal the truth about a person. Thoughts which are voluntary, unforced, and which arise naturally because they are delighted in and bring satisfaction to the mind. There are the, there are the thoughts which show us the real truth about ourselves. Especially, he says, when a person is relaxed and free from all cares and worries and his mind is free to think as it pleases, then we can see what thoughts are natural to it. And Paul is saying that's what the believer is like. He isn't the kind of person who only thinks about spiritual things when you bring it up to him, when he's listening to a sermon, although then uh, he perhaps is at his best. He's really enjoying himself. He's delighting in the things of God. But, but think of him as he is on, on the sickbed or just when he's lying there thinking and he has several uh, minutes or even hours to himself. What are the things that animate his desires? What are the things he likes to think about? As a man is when he's relaxed and at ease, that's what he's really like. The thoughts that are natural to the mind and the mind of the believer, Paul says, is spiritual. It is set on spiritual things. The Holy Spirit has set it now in a new direction. And it is now easy and natural for him to think of spiritual things. just And to delight in thinking of spiritual things. Just as easily as it was for him formerly to think on unspiritual things. And so to, to give an example. I'm not, I'm not going to finish this sermon. That's okay. There's always next time. We'll end on this thought. I think it's a good thought to end on. Here is a man, this is self-serving, but I'm, I'm going to say it. I've noticed the most spiritual-minded men like to listen to sermons. They enjoy listening to sermons. It appeals to the inner man. It appeals to them as they really are. Give me the Bible. I want to hear of Christ. I want to hear of the Spirit. I want to hear of the work of God. I don't just want to hear it in church. I notice the most spiritual people I know are listening to sermons throughout the week. And I've caught some of that as I was a general assembly and at times with other men. I've started listening to sermons, too. And the more the work of God advances in my life, the more I want to listen to sermons. But that isn't the only thing. I'm just saying if you don't like to listen to sermons, that might not be a good sign of your spiritual health. You enjoy reading the Bible. 
It's the kind of thing you want to do, not that you have to be forced to do. Another thing is you love to talk to other Christians. The Puritans called it Christian conversation. Tell me uh, about the work of God in your life. Or tell me about what you're discovering in the Bible. I love to talk to other Christians. Do you? Is that something that you find animates and delights your heart? Well, I think this is a good litmus test. We still have life and peace to go, and we'll leave that for next time. But the believer is someone whose heart and mind is renewed. He's now able to set his heart on these things. He loves to hear of Christ. He loves to hear of the work of Christ. He loves to hear sermons on these things. But the unbeliever is someone who is always bored by these things. They never capture his interest. Not in a conversation, not in a sermon, not in a book. They will always be an enigma to him. And just as soon as they're brought up, uh, he can't wait for them uh, for, the, for the man to stop talking. And of such a person I say, you are not spiritually minded, at least not yet. Oh, but how easily you could be. Oh, how easily you might be if only you believed and repented at the, mess, at the message of the preaching. But as my aim ultimately is that of assurance, I would say to you, those of you who love to talk of spiritual things, who love to think of spiritual things, who are aware of the way that God has renewed your mind and renewed your interest in your heart, well, then I am sure of you and you ought to be sure of yourself that you are indeed the sons of God. Be assured, as Paul will say in verse 9, and we'll be here soon, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Amen. And let us come now to the table. I'll read the words of institution and also of admonition as we find them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Hear God's word, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Well, there's the words of institution. Here is Paul's admonition to the church. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another but if anyone is hungry let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment and the rest i will set in order when i come well paul is setting before the church a test and i think the test looks something like this he's saying i want to know what your disposition is 
not only to the Lord, but to one another. If you read the whole of the chapter, you, you realize, and the end of the chapter makes this clear, that they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in a selfish way. Uh, it was more like a meal in those days. And some were eating so much food and drinking so much wine that they were not only full, but they were becoming drunk. And in those days, there were distinctions that were shown in the church, although that's condemned in other places, and James especially. The rich were going first. Paul is saying that shouldn't be. And by the time the poor came around, there was no, nothing for them to eat. They, they were not able to come to the table. It's kind of like what the Roman Catholics uh, used to do, and I don't know, maybe they still do, of withholding, uh, withholding one of the elements. No, I'm, it's the cup that they withheld, if I'm not mistaken. Thank you for nodding. <laughs> uh, you don't get the full Lord's Supper. But you see, the sin in the, the Roman Catholic practice or in the, in the early church was that they weren't thinking of their brother. It wasn't an act of communion. And so part of what Paul is encouraging us to do when he says to examine yourself is not to just determine whether you realize this is a spiritual transaction with the Lord. It's more than just something that's carnal, uh, bread and wine. It's much more than that. You need to be able to discern that. But you also need to be in fellowship with your brother. That's why we call it communion. This is something that we're doing together. It's something that we can only do together. I'm not a fan of, of families. I don't think anyone in this church does it, but in other churches or in other settings, you have, you have people practicing communion, private communion. No, this is an act of the church. This is something we're meant to do together. And in many ways, perhaps it isn't as obvious since we're not all coming to the table as they did in the old days, but... At least before the Lord, it reveals where you stand with your brother. Are you in communion with him? Are you mindful of him? Are you thinking of him? Do you wish for the Lord to draw you in, in, into closer fellowship with him? And so uh, think of that as uh, the few, few more seconds pass by before you come. Do I wish to be in communion with my brother? Do I wish to enjoy the communion of the saints in this life and in the life to come? Let a man examine himself, Paul says. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of communion. We thank you, O God, that you have bound us together, not only with our Lord in heaven, that is by far the greatest and the most precious gift, but you've also bound the church together as one in blessed communion. And we ask you that as a result of this, that we might have the spirit of Christ, even a spirit of forgiveness and forbearance and love. Perhaps we have been wronged. Perhaps someone has sinned against us. That, that doesn't need to be a bar of communion. We, we can be, even then, those who overlook a fault, those who forgive, those who pardon, and, and equally those who confess a fault. Oh, God, we pray for this church. So often I pray for her growth. But more than that, oh, God, I pray for those, the steady, long-standing members, that, that we would grow together, not numerically as much as in our bond and in our love for one another. And in so far, O oh God, as we have fallen short of that ideal, again, we confess our sin to you, just as we, I hope, freely confess it to one another. And pray, dear Lord, that through this means of grace, that you might work greater faith and greater love in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.